You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I'm going to recite some facts. Let's see if you know some of these. Did you know that bananas are technically berries? Honey will actually never spoil. They found some honey in an Egyptian tomb about 3,000 years old. It's still edible. You can still eat it. I don't know who tried it, but it's still edible. Octopuses or octopi, I probably should have checked that, um, have three hearts. Two for the gills and one to pump blood to the rest of the body. There's always three hearts. Many penguins actually propose to their mates, and as a token of their love, they take a little pebble and they give it to them as a sign of their love or faithfulness or whatever it is. Did you know that the the world's largest diamond is 1.37 pounds, about the size of a tennis ball? How would you like to be engaged with one of those? Okay, one more. Where do you think the largest desert in the world is? Africa, America. It's actually in Antarctica. Yeah. Now, many of you are hearing these facts for the first time, and you're intrigued, maybe. It's interesting to learn new facts about our world, particularly when they're unexpected facts. But notice what all these facts have in common. Unless you're going to go on to Jeopardy!, These facts have zero bearing on your life. It makes no difference whether these things are true or not to you. And yet much of the content we consume these days falls into this category. Think about how many hours we spend taking in content that has no eternal significance in our lives. And so here is the danger for all of us. We can treat the gospel this way. We can engage with preaching and worship music and Bible study and then shrug it all off and say, that's nice. That was interesting. That was, that was good to know. We can live lives where we verbally and intellectually agree with the gospel, but lack all proof of its power in our lives. Let me ask you, do you feel that for yourself today? Sure, you agree with the Bible propositionally, but does it cut you to the heart? Does it transform you? Does it comfort you? Are you any different because of it? When the text for today, Paul's message is clear. Sound teaching, that is orthodox or right teaching, rightly received and applied, leads to sound living. We'll learn today that God doesn't just save us from our sins, but he saved us for holiness. The gospel is beautiful as it stands, but God calls us to draw attention to that beauty through our good works, through our transformed lives, through our kindness, our endurance, our self-discipline, our generosity, our forgiveness, our joy, our peace in the midst of trials. That is meant to put on display the beauty and worthiness of God. Jesus is calling us today to look to him not only for the power to save us from our sins, but the power to transform and shape us into the people he wants us to be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God is calling us to effortless perfection as if Christians don't struggle, that we are sinless by by no means. 
None of us standing here has arrived. We, we all know what it's like to feel the sting of our own sin, to be defeated by it, overwhelmed by it. Some of you perhaps are sitting here overwhelmed and defeated, thinking that sin has had the last word in your life. But God's word says that sin does not have the final word, God does. God has the final word. So let's read our passage for today. We're gonna be in Titus chapter two, if you wanna open up your Bibles, verses 11 through 14. I'm gonna read that and then pray. This is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts to receive the word. Lord, that we would not just be hearers of it, but doers of it. And that by being doers of it, we would adorn the gospel. We would put your majesty and your beauty and your worthiness on display. Would you help your word to be magnified in that way? In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're dropping into the middle of this letter, let me provide some context. You see, Paul's writing this letter to Titus. Titus is like another spiritual son to him, just like Timothy. And he left Titus on the island of Crete. You see, there was a gospel work that had been going on there. There were some Cretans that had come to faith in Christ, but there wasn't any structure, there wasn't any leadership. And so Titus was left there to appoint elders to create some structure for these young Christians. And so he needed to look for Christians who were not only understanding the gospel, but actually living their lives in light of that gospel as displayed through their character, through their reputation, through their love. But Titus is finding that this is easier said than done. Beside the fact that most Christians there were probably very young in their faith on on this island, the people of Crete, Cretans, if you've heard that word, sometimes it's used even today, they were not the most noble culture. In fact, in chapter one of Titus, verses 12 through 13, it says this, Paul talking to Timothy. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How about that for a motto? That's their motto. But Paul doesn't say, wow, you know, that's an overgeneralization. That's broad brushstrokes. We don't wanna put people all into the same group. No, look at verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You see, for the Cretans, their actions don't accord with sound faith, with right faith. There was little natural redeeming quality in these people, and yet this is where God chose to have the gospel take root, leaving Titus to do this work. If you're taking note, just write this down as a general principle. God's gospel light shines in the darkest of circumstances. Crete was not where you and I would naturally plant a church. The people there were not the most educated or self-disciplined or kind or wealthy or compassionate. Yet this is where God ordained the gospel to take root in the midst of a sinful people. And this is God's MO. This is just how God works. His grace is most powerfully shown in our sin. You see, our sin does not disqualify us from God's grace. 
Now, before you start judging Crete too harshly, think about our own city of Miami where we live now. We are a city famous for our vices, are we not? I remember going off to college and meeting new people, and and I always remember telling them I'm from Miami, and their eyes would just kind of light up. They'd be like, you're from Miami? Dude, what's it like? It must be crazy over there. And I'm like, dude, I'm from Hialeah, Miami. It's crazy, but not the way you're thinking. And they they would just expect that I was just into this. I'd been exposed to this wild and crazy life. We as a city have our own reputation, just like the Cretans. We are selfish, materialistic, and consumed with beauty and status and leisure. Now, I'm not saying there are no redeeming qualities to our city. I love our city. There's a warmth, a welcoming nature, and a sweet camaraderie between cultures, which is rarely found elsewhere. But we can't deny that as a city, the predominant spirit tends to be one of selfishness, of materialism, and obsession with entertainment and beauty and sexuality. It'd be ridiculous by honest assessment, to think that some of this has not seeped into our own lives, indeed to our own church. But this is our context. This is our reality for today. We hear a lot of Bible teaching, we go to church, we surround ourselves with Christian community, we listen to Christian music, but we still find ourselves stuck in the mud and mire of our sinful habits and our sinful thought patterns. We propositionally receive God's forgiveness, but then say, I'll be on my way now, thank you. I'll do things my way. Paul's response is that true heart transformation will only come through the gospel. Therefore, we must stand on it as our only hope, not only for salvation, but for change. Pastor Milton Vincent has this to say about the connection between gospel and holy living. Should be up there on the screen for you. God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. The wise believer learns this uh, this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract these benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and by daring to reckon it true in all we do. God's gifts are all of grace, and there is nothing we can do to earn them. However, the wise believer will make sure he is positioning himself in the spot where God's gracious gifts are located. And the scripture tells us that all such gifts are located inside the gospel. Hence, the Bible tells Christians to be continuously established and steadfast in the gospel and refuse to be moved from there. And so this is our aim for today, to make the gospel connection between salvation and holy living. I wanna commend This book, by the way, the the excerpt I just read from is from this book. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. It's a great resource that honestly, I think every Christian should have on their bookshelf. It's small, it's dense, it's easy to read, it's extremely encouraging, perfect for devotions. And so I I just wanna commend that to you. We actually read parts of it sometimes before our our service each Sunday. We have a prayer meeting at 10 a.m. We gather to pray read a devotional, have some sweet time of fellowship. I commend not only the book, but even our prayer service at 10 a.m. open to everyone. And with that said, there's three things we should learn from today's passage, which I hope that we learn from today's passage. The first is grace's function. The second is grace's power. And the third is grace's purpose. 
I tried to come up with a good acronym to remember, but all I can come up with is <laughs> function, power, and purpose. Hopefully you remember that. So let's work through those. Grace is function. Let's read these verses again. Verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation, or has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, God's grace has now appeared to us in a way that it hadn't before Paul's time. It's not that God was not gracious before his time. God is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is and always will be gracious. But Paul is talking about a particular historical event that occurred. And he actually expounds on this idea in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. Paul is talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's grace has appeared. And what does this appearance bring with it? We read along in Titus, he brings the salvation for all people. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus Christ will save all people, but more likely than not, it's referencing all kinds of people. In the first 10 verses there of chapter two, if you look at it, Paul's referencing all kinds of people, young and old men, young and old women, slaves. He's essentially saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation for those who would believe in him and that kind of salvation is available to anyone and everyone who would receive it. But what is this salvation? We've heard the term gospel, literally it means the good news. We've heard this term a lot, not only today, but other times, other Sundays. You see, Jesus Christ has perfectly accomplished for us a salvation that we could never achieve on our own. This is the good news, the gospel. For some of you here, you've never really understood what Jesus Christ really accomplished when he lived and died on the cross. Each of us is a sinner, and each time we sin, every careless word, every angry thought, every selfish deed, it accumulates for us a sin debt towards God who is holy and cannot receive and cannot accept sin. Like the man who gambled with his company's expense card, losing millions more than ever he could ever hope to pay back. We racked up a debt that we could never pay back. The gospel is that Jesus paid that debt. We're holding all the tickets, and Jesus is paying all the fines. So, this is the case that whoever trusts in Christ's work on the cross by faith rather than their own capacity to pay that debt back, they will be saved. When it comes time for the Lord to collect this sin debt, we will point to Christ and we will say, he's got me covered. Don't look to me, he's the one who's gonna pay it. This is the gospel. That we would be offered salvation when we could only hope for wrath, to be saved from sin's punishment and reconciled to a loving father in heaven. Now, many hear that and they say, yes, yes, okay, I get that. 
Jesus saves me from my sins. That's great, I got the t-shirt, I understand. Now can we please move on to some of the deeper, more, more mature things of the faith? You might consider the gospel something like the ABCs of the Christian faith, something for spiritual kindergartners, but you've graduated. But the truth we see in Titus 2.12 is that we never go beyond the gospel. We only go deeper and further into it. The gospel doesn't only save us, it sanctifies us. That is, it empowers us to live a life pleasing to God. So if you're someone who feels like they're living in a rut, desiring to change, but unable to do so, listen, because God's word is speaking through Titus 2 today, saying otherwise. So we've seen that part of grace's function is to bring about the salvation of God's people. But grace is also meant to train us, literally the word there, train, has this educational tone to it. It, it refers to a connotation of child rearing. And so grace is to be our, our schoolmaster, our instructor, our, our educator. And what is it teaching us? Well, first, it's to renounce or deny ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the first part of it. Grace makes it possible for us to say no to ungodliness. And we'd say ungodliness is anything that, that puts itself or stands opposed to God. Pride, selfishness, bitterness, hiding sin, proudly displaying sin, you name it. Anything that does not give God the glory he is due is ungodliness. But we are also taught to say no to worldly passions. Now why the differentiation here, right? It seems like a synonym, potato, potato, worldliness, ungodliness, right? Now, worldliness actually takes on a slightly more insidious role. It has to do with the structures and systems of where we live and how they shape our thoughts and our desires. I love how Professor David Wells defines worldliness for us. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Modernity which is the, the world we live in now, modernity is worldliness. And it has concealed its values so adroitly in the abundance, the comfort, and the wizardry of our age that even those who call themselves the people of God seldom recognize them for what they are. Worldliness is the thing that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem odd. I love the way that he puts that. We are so heavily influenced by the world we live in, by the culture we live in. If you don't think that, let me ask you this. How would you feel if someone was talking about Jesus loudly in your workplace, just within earshot of your boss, of your supervisor? Would you squirm a little? Or how about when you watch a TV show that laughs at religious types, or perhaps even just outright curses God? Does that even register for you? Do you cringe or do you, do you laugh along? Is sin normal to you? On the other side of things, does righteousness seem odd to you? Is it weird that there would be a people that would actually take seriously the word of God and commit to come to church, not just sometimes, but every Sunday, that would commit and actually desire to read their Bibles every day? Is that weird to you? Grace teaches us to reverse the damage. The more we taste and see that Jesus is good, the uglier sin looks and the more righteousness looks like the only sane choice. 
Where do you stand in this spectrum? What kind of sins have you cozied up to? What sin did you get tired of fighting and instead just say, you know what, just stay there, don't make a lot of noise, stay in a corner somewhere? There is hope. You can say no to that kind of sin because Jesus Christ said yes to the cross. That's what the passages say. Now, some of you are sitting here and saying, okay, Ronald, that sounds nice on paper, que lindo. But in reality, change is hard. Frankly, I would say it's impossible at times. I've struggled with the same sin for years, but I've never been able to claim victory over it. It continues to consume me and hinder my spiritual life with God, and I can't help but say yes to it. If that is you, then this is God's reminder for you today. God himself has provided for you everything you need for life and godliness to defeat that sin. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose hope. There is power in the gospel. There is power in the grace that God provides. So not only do we renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, grace teaches us to live or pursue a certain life. We have the negative, denying something. We have now the positive, to live up and into something. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In many ways, the opposite of what we just heard and spoke about. Rather than lives dominated by immorality, we are to live lives that speak to the beauty and truth of the gospel. And if you take those three things, it's kind of interesting. Uh, upright and godly lives kind of feels like it's paired together, but this idea of self-control, that feels like that was just kind of jutted in there. Now, the reality is, is that upright and godly living will not be easy or automatic. Upright and godly living does not just manifest itself, it requires self-control. God's grace towards us does not absolve us of the duty to fight the good fight of faith, but rather gives us the ammunition and the power and the means to do it. How many times have we not prayed, Lord, just, just make me less selfish. Lord, just make me more generous. Lord, just please make me less stressed. As if God was a genie who was just gonna change our emotions at an instant. That's rarely the case. It can happen, God can do anything, but that's rarely the case. Rather, instead of changing our hearts immediately, God gives us his grace to remember constantly. He points us back to the gospel for the power we need to change, which is where we're heading to in our next part of our passage. We've seen that God's grace serves two primary functions. This is our first point, namely to save us from our sins and to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and to live upright, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But God does not merely instruct us. God's grace also gives us the power to accomplish his purpose for our lives, which is our second point. God's grace, or rather grace's power, is drawn from a greater hope. Grace's power is drawn from a greater hope. Let's look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our second point. Our gracious power to change is drawn, is sourced from a greater hope. Here's another use of the word appearing. But it's not the same appearing as the first. In the first instance, in verse 11, we see that grace has already appeared. It's past tense. Here, Paul reveals something. Jesus Christ, he's gonna appear again. He's coming again. And this second coming is something Christians wait for with joy. I mean, how crazy is that, right? You rarely wait for anything with joy. 
If anything, waiting diminishes the joy. You're in line at the DMV, you're in traffic, you're waiting for your food, you're waiting to pick up your kid, whatever it is, waiting usually diminishes it. Diminishes the joy, rather. But this kind of waiting produces something in us as Christians because what we're waiting for is a blessed hope. The word blessed can sound abstractly religious. Oh, blessings, bless you. But it literally means happy. Grace hasn't just appeared in the form of Christ. It is coming again when Jesus Christ returns. There's not enough time to get into all the details, but functionally, when Jesus Christ returns, evil will once and for all be defeated. The earth will be uh, restored, and God will claim his final victory over Satan and sin. In short, as Tolkien put it, every sad thing will be made untrue. Every pain, every heartache, every tear, Every struggle, every frustration will be made null and void. Christ will make all things right. Think of everything wrong in your life right now. Everything you wish you could change, whether internally or externally, things you wish you could just make go away. Christ will make all things right. It'll be gone. This kind of certain future should excite us. It should motivate us to live holy lives now. We worship while we wait. The waiting simultaneously builds up in us a holy longing for heaven. This earth, this planet is not our home. But it should also develop in us a deep love for Christ who secured a perfect future for us. This is why Paul puts us in here. When you come to terms with the love that the Father has lavished on us in Jesus Christ, it energizes us, it moves us, it it motivates us. What motivates you? How many of you have read or seen the movie The The Count of Monte Cristo? Handful? You have to watch the movie. It is very good. The book's like a thousand plus pages. Also solid, but but the, the movie's awesome. Well, in this story, Edmund Dantes, he's the main character, he's a humble sailor. But you see that he was motivated and empowered by revenge. You see, he, he was a humble sailor, but, but he had a lot going for him. He was getting promotions, he was engaged, he was up and coming in his life. But he had a best friend, not really a best friend, but a friend who was jealous of him and opportunistic. And he threw him under the bus, betrayed him, and he lost everything. He was wrongfully imprisoned. Everyone thought he was dead and he he just lost the life that he knew. And so through a series of events, pretty cool events, he escapes, he finds a treasure trove bigger than anything you could ever imagine and he reinvents himself. He becomes the Count of Monte Cristo, not Edmond Dantes, but the Count of Monte Cristo. And instead of using that new life of luxury uh, and all those riches to kind of live a life of luxury rather, he instead spends several decades planning with tremendous discipline and skill uh, the plots to punish every person involved in his wrongful imprisonment. He bought mansions, he kidnapped people, he bankrupted people, he methodically destroyed the lives of his enemies. It was intense. A man who was a simple sailor became an evil puppet master bent on destroying his enemies. Why? How? Revenge moved him and empowered him to that end. You see, our hearts are like this. With the right motivation, we can do almost anything. You have a wedding coming up, magically you're able to lose weight, right? Maybe. 
You want to go on that big vacation to Europe? Suddenly you're a little tighter with your finances. But for some reason, we seem to fall short when it comes to the area of our own besetting sins. It's like old Puritan term for the sins that just don't seem to go away. The addictions, the proclivity towards anger, the procrastination. When it comes to our sin, we struggle to beat it back constantly. We fight and we fight and we fight, but we just can't seem to fight, find victory. Why? Thomas Chalmers, he's a 19th century Scottish preacher, had an excellent book that talked about the power of grace to transform us. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a little bit of a strange title, but let me explain. You see, Chalmers recognized that sin by its nature is attractive to us as people, as humans. That's why we sin in the first place, right? Sin is attractive. It seems fun or pleasurable or convenient at the time. We love it in one sense. The way God changes our hearts is not by magically removing these desires usually. And we know this experientially. Many of us know Christ and yet we still struggle with sin. We feel the pull of it in our lives. God changes our hearts by introducing a new love, a new thing of beauty and majesty that has appeared. His love for us in Jesus Christ. And this love is superior in every way to what the world has to offer, which in turn pushes out our love for sin. A greater love will always push out lesser loves. And I'll give you an example of this. My kids and I, we love all these pizza. Don't yuck my yum. It's, it's our routine now to get a couple of those once a week and watch a movie together. And then we have popcorn and candy. You only live once. We, we love that. We enjoy it. Now, my kids love those nights, and they wouldn't trade them for anything in the world. So sometimes I'll mess with them, and I'll be like, okay, okay, guys, let's, let's just scrap it all. Let's just read a book. Maybe have a salad for dinner or something. And they're like, nah. All right, let's, let's go for a run, or, or let's read a book, let, or rather, um, let's go for a bike ride. And they'll be like, nah. But if I were to say, hey, guys, instead of pizza night, let's pack our bags and go to Disney. Before I even finish the sentence, they'd be up the stairs packing their bags ready to go, Right? right? Each of those options in a vacuum is something they enjoy. But when placed in juxtaposition to other options, Disney World will win. It's by far the thing that is most joyful to them, or at least they think. The scriptures has its own illustration in the parable of the pearl of great worth in Matthew 13. This merchant sees this pearl of great worth, and what does he do? He sells everything that he has in order to obtain that pearl because he sees it as the greater, more valuable thing. The gospel is a thing of infinite worth and beauty. Nothing can compare to it. Yet we often trade it in for lesser loves, for trinkets, for boberias, we say in Spanish. The more we meditate on God's love for us, the more we study it in his word, the more we pray about it, the more we swap stories about God's grace and how he's moving and acting in our lives, and we glorify him through those stories, the more we do those things, the more we'll begin to see and remember what is always and has always and will always be true. There is nothing more precious than Jesus Christ's love for us. And once you have that, you need nothing else. And once you recognize that you need nothing else, you will be empowered to defeat sin and pursue righteousness. That is the power of grace. 
Sin will always have its tendrils into us until we set it alight with the fire of God's grace in our lives. God's love for us is better than life itself. This testimony is true. May we live lives empowered, reckoning that to be true. Now, many of us are not changed by the gospel because we fail to recognize one of its key purposes for us. Just to reiterate, we've learned about grace's function, grace's power, and now we arrive at grace's purpose. Grace's purpose. Even now, if I were to ask everyone in a room this size, for what purpose did God send his only son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to die on the cross? We'd get varied answers. But here in verse 14, we get a clear answer regarding one of God's primary purposes in the gospel. Let's read it, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Stated plainly, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us and purify us. Now, just as a quick tip, for whenever you're doing a Bible study, it really helps to underline, circle, focus in on the verbs, the action items. You get to really understand the flow of the argument and, and where it's going when you, when you look at the verbs. So let's, let's look at a couple of those right now. The first is Jesus Christ gave himself. He gave himself. He didn't just give us a hand. He's not our co-pilot, not our assistant. He gave us his very self. And we take this to be referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. God did not just give us the scraps off of his table, but rather his very son. And this was a costly gift. It wasn't just a pleasantry like, yeah, you know what? Just take my son. It's all right. It's fine. This was a, a costly gift. Jesus Christ endured the cross in order to gain a people for his very own possession. Now let that sink in if you're a Christian. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, you are not your own. Does that bother you, maybe? You belong to Christ. You are his possession. He gave himself to you so that you might give yourself to him. And with that status comes all the rights and privileges of sonship, a heavenly inheritance, a committed family and community, an eternal hope of glory. It is a glorious state which would not be possible in any way outside of Jesus giving himself to us. But it doesn't stop there, right? Becoming a, a part of God's family does not only come with rights and privileges, it comes with expectations and realities to live up and into. Every family has these kinds of distinctives, part of what makes them that particular clan or that particular family. For us, in the Perez household, one of the things that makes you a Perez, many things, but one of the things that makes you a Perez is that you love sweets. We are a sweet tooth family and I'm, I'm sorry slash not sorry to pass that burden on to my children. But the reality is, is, is that after each meal, there's a natural question which we have to fight against sometimes. What's for dessert? It's true for breakfast, true for lunch, true for dinner. Don't judge. It's just even just a little piece of chocolate. It doesn't have to be a pie. But every family has this, whether you do it intentionally or not. You have a, a certain distinctive that makes you a part of the clan, right? Well, in the family of God, there are distinctives that make you part of his family. We are redeemed from lawlessness, unrighteousness, and purified for good works. 
This was echoed earlier when we were talking in verses 11 through 12 about grace's function. So what are God's key goals for your life? It's twofold here in verse 14. To redeem us from lawlessness. The word here, redeem, another verb, literally means to release on receipt of ransom. So God saw us in the possession of sin. We were trapped by sin, unable to escape, uh, escape its ownership over us, like it had a contract over us that we could not escape or buy out. And God came and bought out our contract. He paid the price. And yet we are prone to go back to our old master. We're prone to go back to our old ways of thinking and doing. We think it's not a big deal when we flirt with our sin, but we forget that we were bought with a price. If you're a Christian, this might seem a little weird, but if you're a Christian, repeat after me. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I am not my own. I was bought at great price. I am not my own. I was bought at great price. That is scripture, straight up scripture. Parents, you all know what this is like. Perhaps even recently with Christmas, you try your best to provide food, clothing, shelter, entertainment, toys to your kids, make sure they're, they're well taken care of. But what do they do? They're always on the TV or on YouTube or Netflix. And so over Christmas, you're like, I know, I'm, I'm gonna get them this toy, this piano lessons, I'm gonna get them this book set, I'm gonna tell them to go outside, do all these different things. And you, you flood them with these contraptions, with these plans. And a few hours later, what happens after they receive that? They're back on YouTube or Netflix, right? Watching the same shows they always have. They have a treasure trove of other activities to enjoy and pursue, but they go back to what is most easiest, what is most comfortable. We can be just like this as Christians. God redeems us, purchases for us a new life, and yet we go back to the patterns and habits of our former lives. The Bible has a graphic picture for this. Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Recognize this. Acknowledging Christ as your savior must also mean that you acknowledge him as your Lord. Jesus died not only so that we would have our sins forgiven, but also so that we would turn away from them. So God's purpose for us is that we would turn away from sin. That's the first one, but that's only half the equation. We're also to turn towards good works. We are to be purified, to be made clean. And this is so often missed in our lives, is it not? We're prone to think that holiness consists of a life of moral neutrality. Like, as long as I don't get in a lot of trouble, as long as I keep most of the Ten Commandments, like, I'm good, God, right? Like, that's cool. This is a completely wrong framing of reality. God did not save us from our sins so that we're free to live a life of selfish pleasure. He freed us from the bonds of sin so that we would now be zealous for good works. Zeal is such a unique word. We rarely use it nowadays. It's, it's a great word, though. It means to vehemently desire to defend or uphold something. It's not a tepid want. It's not a limp, ineffectual desire. Zeal has a fire underneath it. You're willing to fight for it, to make sure the cause or the person is victorious. You're not zealous for a glass of water. You're not zealous for your county's zoning and planning code. You're not zealous for the new tax law that's coming. Probably not. But you are, I'm sure, zealous to make sure you're not skipped over for that promotion you think you deserve. 
You are zealous for your kids' well-being, their education, their safety, making sure that they're not bullied in school. See, zeal connotes strong desire. And what does the Bible say we should be zealous for? We should be zealous for good works. Now, we have to keep these words in context. You see, Titus mentions the phrase good works several times in this short letter. And often it's in contrast to the false teachers in Crete from chapter one that we had read about who were contentious, quarrelsome, focused on trivialities, rebellious and deceitful. These false teachers claimed to be Christians, but they denied God by their works, verses, or chapter one, verse 16. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, good works is referencing character, integrity, and moral living here. Not necessarily primarily the feeding of the poor or caring of the sick or welcoming the orphan, although other parts of scripture do call those good works. But here we're focused on integrity and character and moral living. This is where your whole life is being transformed into the image of Christ. Your desires, your thoughts, your will, which takes your thoughts and desires and conforms them into actual decisions and actions that you live out. Everything should be constantly growing into alignment with God's word. Those things are naturally bent and God's word by the spirit's power and grace's power is aligning us into God's will. Now let me stop right there. We just talked about God's purpose for grace in our lives. For those of you who have tasted God's grace, do God's goals align with your own goals? When you're planning your life now, maybe even in the beginning of 2024, Many of us have made resolutions. Do your goals include turning away from sin and growing in good works? Or do you instead primarily think about your career goals, advancement, number of children, vacation destinations, 401ks, retirement goals? I'm not saying that those things are wrong or a bad thing. We should strive to work and improve and steward the resources God has given us. That's great. But the framework under which that happens should always be with this purpose in mind. God seeks primarily to shape and transform your entire being so that you turn away from sin and you pursue him. Make sure you're primarily focused on spiritual goals alongside all your other goals that are filtered through God's word. And maybe some of you have already done this, thought through some of your goals, but let me just suggest perhaps one of those spiritual goals this year would be to commit to attend a community group every week this semester. Not just sometimes, not just a handful of times, but actually commit to go for it in this self-control vein and go every week this semester. Or perhaps to pray for someone each day, and if that sounds like too much, maybe every other day, and commit to do that for a length of time. Or perhaps even pick a book up, maybe one of those free ones in the back of the lobby that are short and dense, great counseling books, one that interests you, find someone else in the church, match up with them, grab coffee with them before church one Sunday and read and fellowship and pray and grow in a knowledge of Christ together. Whatever it might be, just make sure that you are prioritizing spiritual goals on top of those other things and that that may align with God's purpose for your life. As I close up, I hope that as we've read and studied this passage, you've caught a glimpse of the beauty of Christ. That you have been challenged, if not wooed, into seeking to know and trust him more. I fear that 
as we come to church each week, we still see grace as this distant gift. We see Jesus like a great grandfather who has amassed a great mass or sum of wealth. And he plans to leave it to us, lucky us. And so out of respect and gratitude, we go and we visit him sometimes. We give him a light hug. We hear some of his stories. We stand there politely nodding our heads. But then we go about our lives without any real consideration for him. He is our spiritual benefactor, but not our friend, not our companion, not our Lord. Y'all, we treat Jesus like this to the neglect of our own souls. His gospel is power. His presence is peace. His love changes everything. Do you believe it? Edmond Dantes, at the climax of the Count of Monte Cristo, is faced with a decision. Finally, he got everything he, he desired. His plans went, went off without a hitch, and a lot of the people who uh, were attributed to getting him in prison and betraying him were punished pretty harshly. The only one left is the key enemy, his former best friend. You see, at this point, revenge had consumed him. Hatred had consumed him. But there was one glimmer of hope given to him, the hope of finding and being embraced by love. At the end of the book, it is this kind of love that melted away his desire to continue to pursue his self-destructive plans. His being loved by a woman pushed out his love for revenge. This is the way God works in the world. This is how he's built it. A greater love is needed to push out a lesser love. Now, for some of you, this might be the first time you're considering the depth of the implications of the gospel. If you're new here and, and you haven't done it yet, let me just give you one possible application amongst whatever the Spirit might be laying on your heart. It's been mentioned, but I invite you to join our Wednesday night Bible studies with Pastor Eric here at the church. The gospel-centered life and gospel-centered community is in many ways a great application of this Titus 2 passage, of seeing grace not only save us, but transform us. So if you haven't done that already, I, I commend that to you. Check it out. For others, you've heard these truths so many times that it might be going in one ear and out the other. Don't let this be one of those times. What area of your life is dead and lifeless because you've lost a sense of the wonder and faith that God can bring into a dead life? What sin is crouching at the door that you are happy to let rest there because it just never seems to go away anyways? So I'm just gonna leave it there. Turn away from trying to do things your way and look to the gospel to not only save you, but to then motivate and strengthen you for the days ahead to pursue righteousness, to honor Christ, to love others, live a life of self-sacrifice and worship to God. He is worth it. He is worthy of it. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.